Welcome to the True Neighbor Podcast. My name is Tom Breyer. My guest today is Ricky Quintero. Ricky is the Executive Administrator to Mayor Michael Helfrich in the city of York and is one of the most prominent activists in the Mid-State. He moved to the United States at the age of 13 from Colombia, and his story is one of the most inspiring I think you'll hear in a long time. Before turning to our conversation, I just wanted to take a moment to provide some updates um, on the COVID-19 front. Today is Monday, March 30th, and there have been a number of reports and changes that I think are worth touching on. I'll start first, though, by saying that today is National Doctors Day. I come from a family of medicine, my grandfather, uh, several of my aunts and uncles, and I see or have seen for my whole life the amount of work that they put into their jobs, how much they care for their patients, and that hasn't changed with this new reality that we've inherited. And I've also just seen folks in the healthcare field across the district really just doing God's work. And so if you know or have friends in the healthcare industry, whether doctors, physicians, nurses, administrators, EMT workers, um, reach out to them today. Send them a text, give them a call, let them know that you're thinking of them and, and thank them for the incredible work that they're doing because they really are the guardians of the gate right now. It's also worth noting that Senator Casey released this morning uh, a new website for coronavirus resources. It is all-encompassing. It is a really good one-stop shop that curates information for every possible industry. And so he has um, categories that include CDC resources, unemployment, information on cash payments, business loans, nonprofits, hospitals, COVID-19 testing, uh, information for seniors and veterans, information on taxes and agriculture. I mean, it really is a comprehensive landing spot for anybody who has a question on a given issue. And so that is available on his Twitter page. If you go to at Senator Bob Casey, I've also retweeted it on our page as well, at Briar for Congress with the number four. But I'm sure if you type it into Google, it'll pop right up because it's on the homepage of his uh, senatorial website. Pennsylvania, the total continues to increase for the number of cases. We're now up to 4,000 COVID-19 cases. There were 693 new ones in Pennsylvania today. Governor Wolf has announced that schools will be closed for the indefinite future, and Dauphin County and Cumberland County have been added to the shelter-in-place order that has been slowly inching across the state for the past week or so. And so all of our district, the 10th district, is now under a shelter-in-place order as of 8 o'clock tonight, and Governor Wolf has information on his Twitter page as well with the specifics on that. The long and short of it is that you can still go to the grocery store or the pharmacy. You can still get the basic necessities that you need, but otherwise you have to stay home. You can obviously go for a walk or walk your dog, do outdoor things that are in the vicinity of your home, but in terms of driving to do leisurely activities or uh, non-essential businesses, that is now prohibited and that's by law. And so this is just another step in terms of our social distancing in Pennsylvania. It's going to get more strict as the weeks go on. There was a report um, or a study, rather, released by the University of Washington that projected the Pennsylvania apex as being on April 17th, which means we're a couple weeks away from really being in the depths of the coronavirus crisis here in the Commonwealth. So it's just good to have, I think, that long-term perspective in terms of knowing that we're really going to have to acclimate ourselves to this new world for, for some time. 
Finally, before turning to Ricky, there was an article in the New York Times today that really struck a chord with me, and I, I would encourage anybody else to read it, but it talked about how other countries around the world are responding to the COVID-19 pandemic. And there are deep concerns about surveillance and privacy, particularly authoritarianism. Viktor Orban, the prime minister of Hungary, basically used the pandemic as his version of the Reichstag fire, which history buffs will know that Reichstag building in Germany was hit by an arsonist four weeks after Adolf Hitler took power. Um, Adolf Hitler used that as pretext to pass the Enabling Act, which gave him complete control over the government and cemented him as a dictator. Viktor Orban basically just did the same thing in Hungary. He now has unlimited power to sidestep parliament and suspend existing laws. There are potential sentences up to five years in prison for disseminating information that the government deems non-public or against their interests. There are some major concerns globally for autocrats and dictators and tyrants to use a crisis like this for extreme personal gain and extreme power. And so obviously here in the United States we have concerns of our own, but I think watching the global response to the pandemic and being acutely aware of those with malevolent intent looking closely to what they're doing, and Viktor Orban is certainly in that category. Turning to my episode and conversation with Ricky, all that needs to be said about Ricky is that if we want an example for what public service should look like, Ricky Quintero is it. He's navigated this coronavirus response brilliantly, empathetically, and compassionately. He sets an example for young people across the mid-state, especially in the, in the Latino community, who look up to him and want to be like him. And his story of moving to the United States at the age of 13, shortly before 9-11, and then watching this country navigate a terrorist attack and a great recession and now a pandemic, from his perspective, is one that I think you'll really enjoy hearing. We also touch on the resources that are available for those who live in the mid-state, and that's very valuable information as well. So without further ado, I give you our next true neighbor, Ricky Quintero. All right. I'm here with Ricky Quintero. Ricky, thanks for coming on the podcast. It is a pleasure to be here. Thank you for having me. We met a few months ago down in York. Um, Peter Botros, a mutual friend of ours, really great guy, introduced us. And it's been great to get to know you over these past few months because one of the things that I've really tried to do in running for office is, is to listen and to learn from people who are active day in and day out in their communities. And, you know, I think what you've been able to do over the past several years is the perfect example of someone who's been active. And so I uh, have a number of questions that I wanted to ask you. But um, first, can you tell us just a little bit more about yourself? I know you grew up outside the outside of the country before moving to the United States. But can you tell us your life story a little bit before you got to York? Of course. Uh, so um, I am an immigrant. I arrived uh, to the United States when I was 13 years old. I am originally from Colombia, uh, from the city of Cali, which is the third largest city in Colombia. Um, I grew up in a very, in a family that fostered education. And I'm very grateful for that because I think it shaped my outlook on life as I grew up. 
My dad was a professor of chemistry and math at uh, the college level. And my grandfather, his father, was the owner of a private Catholic high school. So when I was a kid, I remember, you know, accompanying my dad to teach uh, as he taught students. And that was a great experience. Um, I grew up there, uh, obviously, with my paternal side of the family. So my maternal side of the family lived in the United States. They have been living here since the late 70s. Um, my mom, um, as her family kept immigrating to the United States, uh, she stayed in Colombia because of my dad. Obviously, you know, she fell in love with my dad. They got married. They had me. And so her life was in Colombia uh, for those first 13 years of my life. Um, as things progress, um, they had a fallout. Uh, things didn't work out for them. They decided that it was best uh, for them to part ways. And uh, my mom then wanted to pursue a higher dream of attaining um, opportunities that, unfortunately, at the time were not available in Colombia. Uh, during those times uh, in the mid 90s, there was a lot of tension uh, with the drug cartels being disseminated and the economy trying to bounce back. Um, but there were still a lot of remnants from those times, uh, you know, when the drug cartels were just uh, rampant in Colombia and caused a lot of issues. Uh, a lot of the sectors in Colombia at that time were um, halted and they were hit tremendously uh, because of uh, that ongoing war within uh you know, the authorities and, and the drug cartels. So for a long time, um, it was very difficult uh, for educated professionals and non-educated, uh, you know, to find a good to find a good job and uh, to gain a good opportunity in life. So she decided to immigrate here. As I mentioned, uh, her family, my mother's family, had been living here since the 70s. She was the only member of her family that was not here yet. Uh, and so it's just uh, it prompted a, a chance to try something new. Uh, and so in 1997, um, my mother got her visa uh, for her and myself uh, to uh, for her, uh, myself and my little sister, who was four years old at the time, to immigrate to this country uh, as permanent residents. Uh, and so we arrived here uh, in New York uh, in 1997. Uh, and I've been here ever since. We lived in the New York City, North Jersey area. Uh, for about eight to ten years uh, and then we immigrated here to York uh, my mother uh, reignited her life uh, with someone uh, else she met someone that was from York who was living in North Jersey at the time um, they fell in love and then they would come here on vacation to visit York County because his family was here um, and she fell in love with the area um, you know with the cost of living uh, with how slow things were compared to the hectic bustle, the bustle of, of the concrete jungle of New York City. Uh, and she wanted to uh, build her dream. She wanted to reach the American dream. She wanted to have her home. She wanted to build assets and equity in this country. And at the time, um, this was in the early 2000s, um, the economy was ripe to buy real estate here in, in, in PA. And so she made the decision to uh, move here. Um, at the time I was in high school, I was finishing high school, so she moved here, I got remarried. Um, I chose not to follow at that time. Uh, I was 18, 19 years old during that time, and um, I was just starting life. And so, obviously, I, I felt the need to experience more, to, to live a little more on my own terms uh, as a young adult. And so, I stayed behind with my grandma, I went to school and, you know, held some jobs there. Uh, and then in my mid-20s, um, I moved here to be with my family. I reached a point where um, I wasn't finding myself anymore. I wasn't able to have a connection with me uh, and my family because we were separated. Uh, and me and my family, me and my immediate family, I should say, my, my sister and my mother, we always have been very tight. 
Uh, and so at that time, I felt that it was necessary for me to make a move and make a sacrifice and be closer to those that I love. And so I decided to move here to York, PA. Um, at that time, I moved here in, it was uh, 2008, uh, the end of 2008. Um, I had a friend that I went to school with who was working at county government at the time for the county of York, and he was doing a transition to D.C. He was moving to D.C. to get a federal job, but he was very well connected within city and county government. Um, and he heard of opportunities where they were looking individuals that were bilingual, because at that time we were having the first uh, huge influx of um, Spanish-speaking uh, folks coming into from the main uh, cities in this area. So uh, there's always been a trend of um, Latinos moving into York from Baltimore and New York. Uh, but during that mid uh, uh, section of, 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 of the first decade of the 2000s, there was a huge influx. So there was a need uh, to have folks that can relate to that population, that can speak their language, that can translate, um, and that are focus-oriented to provide services to the people wholeheartedly. Um, and my friend from school knew that he said, you know, hey, you know, I just found out that your family happens to live here. Um, I know you you mentioned to me that you would like to come here. There is an opportunity. I can put in a good word for you. You know, you have the credentials, you have experience. Uh, and at the time, they were willing to kind of train you, even if government was not something you did before. They were willing to train you. Um, and so I looked at that opportunity as a temporary opportunity. I had no idea what government would be like. I never worked in government until that time. Um, so I took it, I uh, took the job, I applied for it and I was grateful enough to be hired right away when, in city government. Um, but I didn't know that that was my passion. Um, I, I, I never tried it before. And once I got a hold of, you know, the intricacies of government and what public service entails, I just fell in love with it. And, you know, some things, sometimes things happen by fate. I believe that was fate for me um to find an opportunity in a career in government and so i quickly went through the ranks um and, and i am where i am today uh so it's know, an amazing story ricky and i want to yeah. talk to you more about public service because i think the one thing you and i share is trying to show the next generation that public service should be something you want to be a part of mm -hmm. you should aspire to be in positions of influence in the public space but um before that i i do want to you know, I was 13 years old when my family moved. We did not change countries. We drove two hours from Scranton, Pennsylvania to Hershey. It was not, um, you know, and in hindsight, I look back at it. At the time, it seemed like a big adjustment, but I was very lucky to stay in, in a similar area with family and friends. Um, but you, you moved to a new country at the age of 13. You get here in 1997. Is, is that right? Yes, And correct. so four years later, we have 9-11. We lived through that tumultuous time period. You come to York in 2008, which is when the Great Recession hits, um, and now we're living in a pandemic. You know your experience in the United States during these past two decades. Um, you've seen a lot. What was your impression of this country when you arrived? Has it changed at all since you've gotten here? If so, in what way? And if not, what has remained the same? I. Uh very, very good question or questions, I should say. Uh, so let's start from from the beginning. My first experience or, or uh, you know, the the way I received this country when I arrived um, was in a very good way. So I, I was fortunate enough to not endure some of the struggles that other immigrants have 
face through uh, the arrival to this country, perhaps through the border or through other means that make it a struggle uh, to assimilate to the country. Um, I was fortunate enough, uh, which took a long time uh, to get legal passage here uh, through a legal visa. So as far as um, the lawful side of things like coming here, that, that, that structure, that dynamic of coming here through, uh, through the regular systems, um, that was a breach. It was not hard. Um, obviously, uh, the language barrier was, uh, was a hurdle at first. Um, adapting to an environment uh, where you don't understand anything that's being said around you uh, was difficult. Uh, but I was blessed enough that when I was in school, I went to a Catholic school and Catholic schools are some of the best systems of education in Colombia. The public school system in Colombia is not very good, um, not in terms of education, but in terms of resources. Um, and so when I went to Catholic school, I took English classes since I was in first grade. So what helped me in my case was that I did not know how to speak it, but I know the basics. Um, and so that helped me uh, learn the language quicker. Uh, so at first, the first obviously issue was the language accommodating to this culture, um, you know, assimilating myself to the customs, uh, you know, the sayings, you know, the little things that people do here, understanding why they're doing it, um, what's behind it. Uh, and then, the, the, you know, I started realizing that what we are, we are just uh, we're, we're a massive culture uh, made up of collective subcultures. Um, we are a nation of immigrants. And although we have a collective general uh, American culture that we identify ourselves within that fabric, um, we have small subcultures that have contributed to what we have today. Um, and so as I ended up growing as an adult here, that's what I noticed. Um, and so I, I was I was encouraged and I was grateful to be uh, where I was to be in this country uh, because I had never I would have never had the opportunity to mix myself culturally with so many other people from all from around the world and understand that my struggle was not unique, but the other people have come here because of the same reasons. Um, I would say comparing my experience there. So I should say that I was very fortunate to arrive, at, you know, uh, in New York City, which obviously is one of the most populated and diverse cities in, in the world. And then I moved to North Jersey uh, and there was a lot of uh, Hispanics in that area. There's a large Hispanic population. So um, I wasn't isolated from my culture. That was a good thing uh, that allowed me to thrive was that whenever I needed to get back to my roots, there were segments uh, in that community that were uh, either from my country or from other Latin countries that I could relate to. But the good thing is that being in such diverse area also allowed me to learn from other cultures and from other countries that were not Latin uh, based. Uh, so that was a beautiful experience. I never, I was fortunate enough that because of being in that area, I never had to endure any, let's say, um, any oppression or any bias. Um, any type of discrimination, unfortunately, until I moved. Um, and it was when I moved, and, and you know, this is not to diminish my experience here. I have had, I'm very grateful for the experience I've had in PA, uh, but it was, it was here when I moved to PA that I realized that there were an uglier side of things uh, in human nature. Uh, and, you know, I have to say it, but, you know, when I moved here is when I first experienced what racism looked like. Um, when I first experienced what, you know, perhaps just being ignored or, or not given the same platform would be like for someone that is not from an area where you have a lot of diversity. Um, now, if you compare that to what it is now, it has changed completely. 
Um, we are more diverse. We are welcoming more uh, cultures, more uh, nations and families from around the world. And we are conforming to the new sign of the times. Uh, and, and so that's good. Um, so that's so my experience. Mm -hmm. Just, I find this just a, a point worth flagging just because, you know, your experience is different insofar as when you came to the United States, you were able to acclimate within communities that resembled at least to some extent the community you would come from in Colombia. But then you come yeah. to central Pennsylvania, you are at that point, you know, an adult mm -hmm. and you encounter racism, at least in a more explicit form for the yes. first time. What is, what do you do the first time that registers on your consciousness that someone is judging you by the color of your skin or your ethnicity? Who do you go to? Do you internalize that for a time period? Do you go to a family member or to a religious leader? How do you respond to that type of encounter for the first time? Well, I, I can tell you how I reacted. Um, and perhaps I could have reacted better. Uh, but to me, experiencing that was so shocking um, that I just internalized it. Uh, I put it in a compartment within me and I just kept pushing forward. I'm a very hopeful person. Um, the struggles that I have faced in life, you know, have made me a very resilient person. So I have very thick skin. Um, and I understand that a lot of the, the bias and racism that we have in this nation just really comes from ignorance. Um, you know, as we know, it has been said before, it's now cliche, but we've heard many times that no one is born racist. You are learned or you are taught to be racist. Um, and I understand that. And seeing the struggles of my Latino community uh, in this country throughout the decades, um, you know, you kind of have an idea where things come from and how it's been. It's just that up to that point, I never experienced it myself. So um, it was shocking. I, I, I internalized it. And then what I try to do and what I continue to do is that in order to eliminate the ignorism, that, that the ignorance, I should say, I'm sorry, uh, the best way to, to make a difference is by advocating and being a voice and showing those that may have a different perception of people that look like me or speak like me or sound like me um, is to show them what I'm, what I'm really about, what we're all about as a collective culture, um, what we come here to offer. You know, we don't come here to take, but we come here to contribute. We come here to fulfill the same dream that their ancestors fulfilled um, hundreds of years ago or decades ago. Um, and, you know, once you show them the best aspect of you uh, or the better part of our humanity, um, then, you know, you can change the mindset. And so I internalized it at first, um, you know, during that time, I didn't have a lot of mentors. Uh, of course, those are things that you mentioned to your family, you know, when you're having dinner or when you're having conversations. Um, but it was it was nothing that I decided to um, uh, base my success on. Um, it's more something that it's prevalent and that it would remain. Uh, but, it, it, you know, you just have to deal with it and fight it, you know, one conversation at a time. And you do it with actions. You know, if I am to change your mindset about what you might perceive of a certain uh, group, um, you know, the best thing you can do is show them uh, with actions, with what's in your heart, uh, what you're really all about, you know, character, uh, and, you know, one's character is would always show regardless of the situation. And it's usually through the hardest times that character is revealed. And so if anything, I think experiencing racism has allowed me to be who I am today. And it has allowed others in the public sector to see my integrity and all that I can offer to the service of people uh, because of those things. It's a beautiful sentiment. And I wonder, you know, when I 
would go down and I've been down in New York now for the better part of the past year, whether it's knocking on doors or going to community events or getting to know people. And the one thing I encounter that I find really difficult to overcome or crack through is the apathy and mm-hmm. the despair. I can't tell you how many times I've knocked on someone's door and tried to explain that I was running for office and they've basically said, listen, pal, I've heard this message before. I've mm-hmm. seen your type come through here before. There's still shootings on my street corner. Mm-hmm. There is still a $7.25 minimum wage. Mm-hmm. There still isn't health care. You know, I'm tired of these politicians coming through and telling me that they're trying to make the world a better place because I've seen it for years and it's never changed. And yeah. so when someone, do you hear that from the people that you talk to? And what's your response to someone with that deep a level of, of apathy and despair for the circumstances that they find themselves in? The first thing, um, so, you know, working uh, at the city government level, um, you know, you hear it very close to you, you know, how people feel about uh, candidates and the greater forms of governments. And I mean, greater, like higher levels, state and, and federal. Um, and uh, what has worked for me is having empathy. Um, I think the ability to relate to the struggles of others, especially if you have lived through those struggles, um, it's a great asset for a politician or for someone uh, that's a candidate. Um, and you don't necessarily have to live the same experiences, but like I said, the ability to empathize, the, the ability to put yourself in the shoes of that person and imagine or or try to comprehend based on what they're telling you, uh, what would have been that experience for you? Um, had that been you? Had that been your family? And how you will react to it? So I think once we're able to put ourselves in their positions, then we're better able to respond to those things. And so, you know, when I hear those things, obviously I empathize. I understand why they say it and I agree with it because uh, unfortunately, uh, you true. know, there, yeah, there, there, there is a trend and that's how politics works. Obviously, uh, you know, candidates have to put out a platform. They have to put out an agenda. Um, they have to, uh, you know, convince and persuade through their rhetoric uh, the, 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 the people uh, on what they plan to do. Um, the problem, as we know, is that, you know, we can have the best plans in the world, the best agenda to push. Uh, but once we get elected and uh, working towards accomplishing those goals with, uh, you know, through bipartisan uh, issues and 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 what can be a very polarized political spectrum could make difficult for those agenda items to come forward. And so that's the problem. So I try to explain people, you know, I, I if I was running for office, I could have all these ideas and I do want to implement them. But obviously, once I'm elected, I have to climb that hurdle and then I have to persuade those that are working alongside with me to get on my page so that they can follow my vision and so that we can um, bring those agenda items into laws and into uh, you know, specific items that can change the lives of you here in York and other cities like York. Um, think, mm-hmm. And that's especially true right now. I mean, we're living through a generational pandemic yeah. and York now is under a shelter in place order from the governor that he mandated yesterday. But York at this time, I think, and uh, and I'd like to hear your thoughts on this as well. I think the leadership in York with Mayor Helfrich and the community leaders in the city and even around the county, I, I was reading how York Suburban School District is collecting hand sanitizer and food for yeah. healthcare workers. I've seen food banks and food drives in the city for folks. Um, the silver lining in a crisis is that it does tend to reveal the goodness exactly. of our society and and kind of link our common bonds to a common cause. Mm-hmm. Have you seen the same in, in these past few weeks? And what's 
what's it been like being on the inside of the mayor's office during a crisis like this? It, it has been very demanding. It has been very frustrating and stressful at times. Um, this is uncharted territory. Uh, none of us in this country have experienced anything like this before. So this is new for all of us. Uh, but you are correct that our community has come together in ways that I have not seen before. Um, you know, and I have a saying uh, that, that I use often, and that is, every setback is a setup for a better comeback. Mm. And through our history, you know, we have learned that um, we are better when we come together because of adversity, uh, you know, struggles and, and, and obstacles have a way of bringing people together for a common cause, as you mentioned, and America is very experienced at that uh, through the very hurdles and obstacles that we have faced as a nation. Um, and so this is one of those uh, experiences that would go down in history as, as a bonding experience. Um, as bad as the coronavirus is, it has pushed us to see past our differences and come together for the greater good of our neighbors. And that's what we're seeing. And uh, working the inside of the mayor's office, being the right hand of the mayor, I have been a primordial part of that. And I'm proud of that. And this is why uh, when I look back at what I was mentioning to you, my upbringing, how I came here and how I ended up loving uh, public service is for reasons like this. Because this is when you see your government at work. This is what governing is about at uh, the times when you need uh, assistance the most from those that you're elected. Um, and so we have been very fortunate to have professionals around us that we can rely on. Uh, we have been very uh, proficient at building bridges with stakeholders and elected officials at the county, state and federal levels so that when it comes to times like this, it makes it that much easier to get those resources. You already have those bridges, you have those bonds and relationships. And that comes from fact, from having a, a, a wholehearted uh, interest for the people. Um, and, you know, that's those are items uh, that when I see them play out, you know, having those relationships, those bridges play out uh, into something good in times like this. It's just something to be you know very proud about. I particularly, um, I, I don't take credit, but I'm grateful that through my tenure in public service, I particularly have been able to build very, very good relationships with people, at, you know, at the county, state and federal level. A lot of friendships that I value, a lot of mentors that I value today um, that I have connected with over the years. And so in times like this, when I have a quick question, I don't have to go through the red tape or let's say many phone calls or emails. I can just perhaps just send a quick text uh, or a quick email and I'll get a response right away from those on top. And again, that comes from having an interest for the people because it's all about connections and, 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 you know, and we work for the people. And so in order to do that, we have to... Um, you know, have a system of collective bonding for so when it comes to things like this, we can have that quick response. Um, but I'm very proud of what you are, of how your county has responded to this pandemic. I'm very proud of how my city has responded. Um, like you mentioned, uh, you know, struggles and adversities have a way of bringing people together for a common cause. And that's what we're seeing now. And it's at the very basic level, uh, you know, from churches, from neighbors, helping neighbors, um, from organizations that had just been created just for this. Um, I mean, it, it's it's almost like, you know, this virus is, is, is allowing people to brainstorm um, all these different passions and ideas that people had dormant for years, but it took this this this, uh, this pandemic to to spark all of those ideas into fruition, um, and that's what's happening now. So um, I've been very blessed uh, to be in a system, to be in a governmental system at the municipal level that has come together like this. This very, is a very difficult question, and if any politician or public servant had solved it, 
they would be enshrined. But in the history of our country, we often see, you know, for better or worse, our country, even though we're divided oftentimes, like you said, we do come together in a crisis. We saw it after 9-11. We've seen it during events like uh, the Iran hostage situation or the shooting of John Kennedy. I mean, there are moments in our history where the country does come together, but then it's fleeting. It yes. doesn't seem to last. It, it almost kind of dissipates as soon as the crisis ends and we return to this state of normalcy where we tend to view each other in competition and focus on our differences rather than our common bonds. How do you think we, what's the best way to maintain this sense of community that we've been able to build in these past few weeks? How do we make sure that this isn't just a temporary uh, bond that we've created? By leading, leading through example or through leading by example. Um, I believe that one of the reasons why we go back to that state, to that enormous state of divisiveness or going back to the status quo where we perpetuate the same issues that we had in previous decades. I think the reason why that remains is because those that are in leadership um, no longer push that rhetoric. And I think that that's a rhetoric that should always be pushed um, at all times, whether we're in good times or in bad times. You know, politicians, leaders are, are good to, to say very good words to bring people together during times of crisis. Um, but it's not something that they push with that same intensity and passion once things go back to normal. And we tend to forget that those issues that we are talking about right now, like divisiveness, I'm sorry, divisiveness, racism, um, biased, um, you know, differences between political uh, views, you name it, any type of division, um, it's a very big issue. And even if it's not at the forefront of what's happening politically, uh, when there's not a pandemic, it should be something that should always be talked about and that should always be encouraged to um, remove from our society. So I, I think that, you know, many Americans rely on your leaders um, to give you the encouragement and to give you the talking points or the thinking points um, on a greater scale, on a greater social scale uh, for you to dwell on. Um, and so if once we're over this, if we don't longer mention and talk about what we have accomplished as a community, as a, as a whole community, as an American community and how we have come together, and we don't mention that from time to time, people tend to forget. It's not that they forget it, but it goes back to their subconscious and they're focused on the struggles and the divisiveness and issues that are happening right in front of them. Um, so it's not, I'm not saying that, What? how can I explain this? What, what I'm trying to say is that regardless of what's going on in politics or in the country after this pandemic happens, there should always be some type of rhetoric that it's mentioned at some point during that leadership's career to remind people that at the end of the day, we are who we are because we can come together in times of crisis and that we should retain that state regardless of where we are, even if we are in good times. I think that if leaders happen to mention this more often, it be, begins to be registered in the minds and in the subconscious of the greater populace. And so, you know, that starts to change lives uh, and, and it starts to trigger and inspire others to continue to do what they did when they came together for that struggle. Um, I couldn't so, agree more. And yeah. I think oftentimes we overlook the power of rhetoric. I mean, obviously our action has to match our rhetoric, but mm-hmm. having an uplifting message, bringing people together, right. having in, uh, a principled message that rests on hope is important. 
Where of do course. you see, obviously you've committed yourself to public service. You've worked in the legislature. You're working now as uh, the top aide for the mayor. You've dedicated most of your life at this point to public service. Where do you see, where do you see your role going forward in, in these next few years? Do you intend to stay in public service? Would you like to run for office yourself one day? Have you thought that far down the line? Where, where do you see your future at this point? I have been asked uh, several times whether um, running for a political office uh, would be in, in my dreams or in, you know, in my thoughts for in, in future years. At this point, I can tell you that I do not know. Um, I love what I do. I don't mind working behind the scenes to move those gears so that things can get accomplished. I don't do this um, for the political gain. I do it for the collective gain. Um, However, I do feel that there are times when you see that nothing's happening and you have to take that risk and that leadership and you have to step, step up to the plate as you are doing and as other con- uh, candidates are doing it. Uh, the, the question is, are you doing it for the right reasons? Um, you know, uh, obviously, we all want to succeed professionally, but do we, you know, being a politician running for office it's a position of tremendous responsibility. And I think that a lot of politicians today, which is where we're having such divisiveness and polarized um, atmosphere in politics is that, you know, we favor, um, you know, the ideals and uh, the mindset of a collective group pertaining to, you know, what we think about. So, you know, Democrats just only want to focus on what Democrats think about. Republicans only want to think and work on that. They think about and there's a lack of compromise. Um and I think that's that that's the issue. And as elected officials, we have to remind ourselves that we're doing things not for what we think is best, but for what we think is best for everyone, even for those segments that we do not agree with, even for those uh, members of the districts that we represent that may not agree with what I believe. And so I have to find a way to compromise so that collectively we're pleasing and, and pushing an agenda that is helping everyone at the same time. And I think that's what we're not having now is that people just want to, politicians just want to fix things for only their uh, segments that are representing them instead of thinking of everyone as a whole. Uh, And so the way that they diffuse it to, you know, some politicians and they use uh, a very divisive rhetoric. um, And and that's where the issue is. No, it's perfectly said. If you had to, you just mentioned an agenda if you were to identify some of the top issues that you see in the city of York, you know, obviously the pandemic right now is number one, but, um, you know, if you take us back a month and before we were in the situation, if you were to put together a top line item for the challenges that folks in the city of York face right now, what would that be? Economic stability. Um, and I think that because of the lack of the folk that is below the poverty line, or the folk that just graduated college but has so much debt that can't get out of the hole that he was in before he started college, uh, because he can't, you know, have a, a a good standard, a good financial standard to 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 move forward. Um, you know, whenever people do not see opportunities to grow financially and economically to provide for those they love, um, they tend that automatically results into a mindset of negativity and frustration that pushes people. Uh, to sometimes react in ways that they were not aiming, uh, they were not thinking of reacting at, like uh, at a previous time. Um, so to me, it's finding a way to provide the resources um, and to bring the opportunities to the people uh, 
that are living in cities like York to have an opportunity to have that platform to uh, be better financially stable, to have an opportunity to perhaps, um, you know, go to school, to have a pipeline where, you know, it's not as hard for someone leaving high school uh, to go to college uh, because they, you know, have to find a job to help their families uh, or a second job. Um, you know, it's once we address uh, the economic inequality that we have um, in this country, then that would um, automatically trigger a subconscious uh, response on people's um, take on what it means to live within their community and care about their community. When you only have to care about surviving and how to provide for your family, you have no room in your mind to care about the bigger issues or the more collective issues of your community. You only care about yourself. So then it becomes, you know, uh, a survival of the fittest. And that's when you have a lot of violence and, uh, you know, arise and you have a lot of divisiveness uh, and you have people willing to react very negatively uh, when someone tries to tell you different, it's because you're so focused on just surviving um, that you don't have space in your in your heart and mind for anything else, unless leaders are able to provide that opportunity. And so we have to, you know, find ways to empower folks to, um, you know, be everything that they can be, uh, by giving them opportunities to have a better livelihood. Uh, once you're able to, you know, be financially stable and to have you know, a better standard of living, then you automatically want to keep that up. And how do you keep that up? Then you really want to go to school and you start looking for more options to educate yourself more. Uh, and you want to build, uh, you know, groups and teams with your community members. And you want to be part of your church more. You want to be part of, you know, your neighborhood associations. And you want to be part of council meetings more at the city level. You know, you go to town halls more. You do that because you are happy of how things are moving. You're, you're doing that because you see that, um, okay, I'm finding opportunities. It is easier for me to be uh, financially stable now and to be able to provide for my family now. So I have to give back. And how do I give back what my country or what my government leaders are facilitating for me is to give it back to my community. Uh, so I think once we are able to address the economic inequality as best as we can, um, once we do that, we would automatically trigger a response um, from constituents to emulate that. Um, to emulate the opportunity that we have been given by the government to then give it back to the people. It's all connected. Absolutely. And, you know, we see this in history, right? When there's a strong middle class, when people have the ability to get ahead, they're much more invested morally, spiritually, civically uh, in their communities. Mm -hmm. And once, once you take away economic stability, then they resign inwards and, like, to mm -hmm. your point earlier, become angry and apathetic and yeah. disengaged. I agree with you. Uh, like, so I just wanted to mention, so, so I, there is different spectrums to, to this, to, to answer this question. Like I'm sure you, you have heard others that say, well, if you want to change, uh, you know, what's happening in cities like York, well, you have to be able to facilitate better education. Um, and that's a number one topic is education. And I, I agree. Um, uh, but however, uh, you know, you, if I grew up in a family that struggle, that struggles uh, to have food on the table, if I don't see my father because he happened to be incarcerated because um, he made a small mistake, but the current um, judicial system uh, is just so polarized right now where if I make a mistake as a Latino, I am likely to get more years than someone who is not for the same crime. And so if I am a kid that's growing up with a dad that had just, and this is just an example, who happens to be in prison, um, and then my mom has to work two jobs for a job 
uh, all day and then I happen to be in school, but then I have to babysit my sister or a sibling if I have one. Um, and then, uh, you know, I have to help that the greater cause of the family to put food at the table and to maintain everyone. Then at what point am I thinking of education? So, yeah, education is great. But unless you are stable financially or you have a, a decent standard of living, you can think of things like education first, because, like I said, sometimes or the priority is to survive. The priority is to make sure that those we love are attended to, that they are provided to. Um, and obviously education takes a commitment that takes away sometimes from the primary things in life. And so if we don't give, if we don't give the opportunities to folks to be, to have a better standard of living, uh, they will never be able to dedicate some other time to educate themselves and push forward uh, because they're not constantly thinking of how do I have to survive? How do I have to put food on the table? How do I have to, uh, how do I uh, pay the bills? How do I pay the mortgage? How do I pay my rent? Um, so it's just one of those things where we have to find a common ground between how we're able to empower people to have a, a better economic standard so that they can pursue things like education and training and all of these things that sometimes people, um, the opportunities are there, but they don't know how to grab them because they're too busy trying to survive. Um, so like, how do we change that? You know, And it's, I think it's by bringing resources to the people. I think that's perfectly stated. And mm -hmm. by having economic stability, you are able to lift the daily stress that comes with living yeah. in poverty and paycheck to paycheck. And unfortunately, 75% of Americans are living paycheck to paycheck. And we see right now what that means during a real crisis. Um, as a kind of closing and a little more uh, lighthearted note, um, now that we're confined to social distancing for the foreseeable future, is there anything that you would recommend to someone in terms of a favorite show, a book, a hobby, recipe, anything out there that you find comfort in and would recommend to somebody else? I'm a man of faith. Um, uh, I am not a religious person, but I am a person of spirituality. Uh, so I, I, first and foremost, in times like this, uh, I tell people to look on whatever their higher power is to find comfort uh, and to have and, and to find leverage and balance. Um, the mental state has to be stable in order for everything else to come into place um uh, you know so seek for your higher power whatever the higher power form is to you um and then try to pursue those things that you're passionate about um i personally i am a man that um, i like to read the word of god i read the bible um i also like to be uh, well informed so i watch a lot of news from different um channels of news so i have a well-rounded um opinion and, and view of what is going on um so being informed of what's happening around you. It's super important from different sources. Make sure that the sources that you're hearing this information from are reliable and so that you're not being persuaded by the greater political ideals uh, that are being pushed to us through the media. Um, you know, we want to have a very neutral uh, viewpoints when it comes to the struggles that we're facing right now. Uh, and that's up to each and one of us to to um, to discover, you know, whether what we're hearing around is correct or not. Uh, and I think that our governments have, uh, at least, at least in the state government, they have been doing a very, very good job to keep us informed. Um, to get more personal, um, I mean, one of the one of my favorite books is called Siddhartha by Herman, Herman Hees. It's a book of of growth. Uh, it's a it's a hero's story. Um, you know, um, 
of, of man finding himself and ultimately being enlightened. Um, I don't know if you heard of that book. It's one of my favorite books. And during this crisis, I started reading it again. I probably read that book over 10 times, uh, probably wow. over 10 times. I'll have to check that out myself. It sounds. Yeah. Herman, he's, uh, he's an, uh, he passed away, he, but he was a um, Nobel Prize winner in the literature field uh, for his writing. And um, yeah, that was one of his most uh, important books, his famous books, Siddhartha. Uh, so if there's a book that I can recommend during this time that would allow one to uh, introspect and look at themselves and what makes them who they are, where they are in life and what are their passions, ambitions and ideals on how to live a righteous life as much as possible. That's a great book. And I think that it relates greatly to what we're um, to the circumstances that we're living today. Siddhartha by Herman Hees. And obviously, like I said, um, if you are a person of faith or uh, if whether he, you know you're. Um, your higher power is community or your higher power is serving others. If your higher power is your family, you know, whatever it is that brings you comfort and it, it stab stabilizes your spirit, pursue that. Uh, because in order to thrive and succeed collectively, we need to be good and in the mental part of it. Um, and I think that's what we need to do first. Ricky, it's a real honor speaking to you. I knew from the moment I met you that your passion was of a rare force because it comes through the moment someone steps in the room with you you're empathetic you're smart you're dedicated if there's anything i can say it's just that we need more people like you and i find peace of mind in knowing that other people are looking up to you in a time like this and so uh, i really appreciate you taking the time to to chat with me today absolutely uh thank you tom for having me here um i appreciate what you're doing i appreciate the passion that you bring into the table um you know to having um someone that identifies uh with our age group um uh, as you have seen you know millennials are engaging politically as they never have before i mean there was a huge uh, engagement um from the millennial community during the obama presidency and during that campaign um and i think that the polarizing and divisiveness of the time have kind of demoralized us um, within this age segment uh, but then we have individuals like yourselves who are willing to represent us um, and represent the ideals and, uh, you know, the views that people like us have for the future. Um, you know, because we are the generation that is going to shape the future in the next couple of decades, if not for the next three decades or so. Uh, and so, you know, we are really focused uh, into bringing a change that can provide a very a better future for our kids. Um, so I thank you uh, for having conversations like this, for engaging individuals like me uh, who can provide a different perspective uh, on, on other areas. Uh, and so thank you for that. I appreciate it. I appreciate you, Ricky. Be well, my friend, and I'll talk to you soon. Sounds good, man. Take care.